Hello, Toby Haydock here. Welcome to the greatest podcast in the galaxy, On Guard. Uh, we're in a pub, but I'm not drinking today because I've got a gig this evening. But my guest is free to have as much as he likes, yeah. and I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Okay. Well, my name is Christopher Gard. That's <laughs> as an actor, I'm a, aka Chris Gard. When I'm a musician or an artist, I tend just to fall back on Chris. Um, Doctor Who, right? Crikey. Well, um, I watched the first episode of Doctor Who. In the clichéd way, behind the sofa, I really did. Uh, in Chiswick, where my friends the Bowyers lived. Uh, William Bowyer, he's now an art, but he's an RA, fantastic artist. And I remember us all, Jason and Francis were my, my pals, and we really did have to hide behind the sofa. And I think that was more to do with the psychological element of Doctor Who. I think it was the storytelling, I think it was William Hartnell's irascibility... Strange, as I recall, discovering that there were nobody lived at that address. The teachers beginning to get suspicious about this girl who kind of seemed normal, but but obviously wasn't. And the tension built more like watching a play for the day than watching a piece of in-your-face Dalek-driven sci-fi. And I I think that that's quite significant. It 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 was genuinely creepy. And it was the it was the creepiness of the unknown, and that in I think is really a psychological thing. So you know, jump on. Didn't really watch a lot of lot of Doctor Who in the sixties, seventies. Um, knew John Nathan Turner from doing a, a big celebrity bash that he organised when he was an AFM at the BBC, and he kind of knew. I mean, I sort of I think he just liked people who were a bit maverick, a little bit perhaps not just ticking the boxes and um, when he put the cast together for Greatest Show he definitely I think deliberately set out to cast A people he personally liked B people he I didn't want this B, C, D but anyway I'll carry on <laughs> three um, <laughs> three people he um, three people he hated no um, I, I think he just I think he just wanted to be surrounded by people who he found interesting and weren't going to kind of challenge his level of threshold of boredom, which was always, always quite low, I think. Um, so suddenly, suddenly there we all were, yeah. I mean, I don't know, I didn't feel particularly uh, flattered to be cast in Doctor Who because at the time, I don't think it was at its most popular. It was running to the end of its initial phase. And, um, but there was, it was a very inspiring time and all the everything that happened around that show, which you know you all know about, all the business with the asbestos and the TVC, the um, having to reset up a in Elf, the car park, Street, yeah. in you know in the in the marquee and all that, which of course kind of played into our hands because there we were. It was all about a circus, and we ended up in a bloody marquee. And there was a kind of fatedness about about the whole show, I think. And we all felt in that kind of slightly lovey way that hey, we're all on the same wavelength here. But it was great to have a lot of actors, a lot of those, uh, you know, people who were musical, like like, um, like Jess and like, um, like Jessica and uh, 
I don't know, you know, and that's obviously the song we made out of it, although, you know, it's kind of... <laughs> hasn't pleased everybody. But I think there was always a feeling that we weren't there just because we were actors. We were there because we were, were, were part of this, yeah, this, this panoply of John's, you know, where he was at the time, which was, yeah, as I say, I think he felt he could just... He was beginning to make swathes right through the BBC, and I think it became a bit dangerous. I think he felt he could go wherever he liked if he had love and um, courage on his side. Does any of that make any yeah, sense? Yeah, no, that's very good. And yeah. um, I've sort of cheated with this as well, because you're on the DVD of Greatest Show and um, and these podcasts go way beyond Doctor Who, so we've, we've done our nod to Doctor Who, but you've been an, you're an actor for a very long time and you started very young on television. If there was a Dickens that needed young David or young Pip, it was you. So you've, you're from a very artistic background. Yeah, I think... Yeah, artistic for sure, yeah, and it was always a mixed bag of, you know, Dad wrote musicals with Donald Swan, you know, famously worked with, um, with uh, you know, Flanders and Swan, that team. So I was always surrounded by not just actors, but, but that uh, Dennis Quilly, who, you know, a lot of people will remember, used to come over and play the flute and sing, and it was always very, um, a mixed bag, of, and it was all about kind of warmth, you know, kind of vivacity... Uh, and, and and energy, I think, as well. So there was a rooting route always from the theatre. But yeah, I mean, I got I got headhunted ridiculously by Bernard Braden, you know, who was the forerunner of um, Esther Ranson's show. I mean, she was originally a a, um, a secretary for him, and he did topical kind of you know humorous stuff, a bit like David Frost, that sort of world. And he came over one time, and he I was this. I was allowed to come down from upstairs and talk to mum and dad and their grown-up friends, you know. I'd always have an opinion about everything, you know. I'd know about the Cuba crisis and I'd know about this, that and the other. And I think Bernard was just... I think he thought it was quite funny, this intense boy of about eight, you know, saying, well, I think the way we're going to solve the world's problems is, you know, and Russia shouldn't be doing this and America shouldn't be doing that. So he got me on to, to, to his show. You know, he, he, I did another show with him a couple of years later. I did something with Claire Rayner uh, at, at Lime Grove where she asked me to... I remember, it's all coming back, blimey, it must be the beer. <laughs> she said... Um, it was called What Happens in Hospital. It was Claire Rayner, remember Claire Rayner? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, in her, in her early days. And I was summoned to Lime Grove. I had to read the book because I was like this sort of bright boy who was beginning to do stuff on telly and she, she wanted me to, to, re, to review it. And it was, on, it was live and I actually... Well, I mean, it would, be, it would be better handled by her PR officer these days, but I wasn't entirely complimentary. And she kept trying to sort of say, yes, but you must like this bit. And then what about that bit? Are you surely you like this bit? And I'm sort of going, I know, but I just found it a bit, that was a bit boring. It didn't really make me feel what it would like to be in hospital, all this sort of stuff. It was quite an interesting, yeah. interesting experience. Of, so that may have been after I'd done David Copperfield. It might have been. But anyway, when David Copperfield came along, I'd already done a bit of TV, you know. Yeah. Um, but because Mum and Dad were in the business and life at home was up and down and it wasn't always happy, sometimes it was and sometimes it wasn't. But So when David Copperfield came along, I really felt, it, although I was very excited about it, it felt like doing Dad's job mm-hmm. and Mum's job. It was being an actor and that's what they did. So I didn't feel... It just... You know, I, I, 
I found it very, very exciting. But I think that was particularly because it was a really good cast, obviously a great story, um, and I remember just getting totally immersed in it. Did you never suffer from nerves or any, anything like that? Because you were... I think I suffered from... Not really, no. I, I think I just felt... Joan Craft, who directed it, mm-hmm. it was wonderful, wonderful. Um, you know, utterly gay. And her, and her PA assistant, Jane Shirley, they were a lovely couple. Um, but Jane, Joan had the, a wonderful kind of... Well, you know, a sort of masculine femininity about her, which I, she really looked after me. And, and I, I think I responded to that. And she really helped. I just felt I was in the right place at the right time. Also, Latimer had said I could do it. You know, they let me off. I, I did it mainly during the school holidays. But they, they allowed me to have a bit of extra time off. And um, it, all felt, it all felt like it was meant to be until the first episode went out in 1966... And I was on the front of the Radio Times. And I just thought, oh, I've just gone off and done this thing. It's nothing to do with school. And then I woke, walked in on the Monday morning, and suddenly 1,100 boys and you know, 120 teachers all know who I am. And it's all like, oi, copper oi, you, you know, and all that kind of stuff. How much do you get? And life became kind of different. Because mm-hmm. I wasn't at a stage school. You know, yeah. It wasn't what I was meant to be doing. Although, of course, retrospectively, Latimer became this kind of hub of producing Alan Rickman and Mel Smith and Hugh Grant, and so now it's heavily associated with that tradition. But I was there, I was doing it before that tradition was kind of there. And so how, how did you insulate yourself against that, or did you go the other way? I, I stood up for myself. I, I continued to keep the friends I regarded as my close friends... I, I, I pretended more than I should have done. I, I tried to suck up to people who I thought would make me look cooler within the school environment. In other words, that wasn't really what I respected in myself. But I was confused because I was pulled in several different directions. You know, and it was a time when acting was pretty odd. Mm. You know, television was only just beginning to become uh, accepted, really. I mean, the public didn't. I mean, we didn't have we didn't have a telly at home. We had to go next door to, <laughs> to watch my first appearance. <laughs> really, and was that on principle, or was it? Was, well, Dad wasn't very television house. Well, yeah, kind of not a television house. Yeah, a bit brown bread. Um, yeah, but Dad wasn't that keen on it. And, and let's face it, a lot of television was pretty crap as well. And it was only on for a few hours a day. And, and if you watch early episodes of um, you know, Andy Pandy and stuff now, it's like, how did we, fi- how did we find that so mesmerising? Because it looks so... And that's the point. It's not about what it is, it's what we were. Mm. It's about our sense, our sensual perception. How you assimilate it. Completely. Right. Now we're so saturated with the media... That, that we're bored all the time. Oh, what's on next? What's on next? There's never enough. So, so, suspend your disbelief yeah. and enter in... What was that thing that um, John Cleese quoted uh, Marty Feldman as saying? It's that inner logic. You know, stop, stop being clever. Kids aren't clever. They're, they're brilliant. You know, they're, they're, 
aware and perceptive, but they haven't yet discovered clever. Mm. I was watching people on the tube train today, kids of five or six. Why is it... Oh, we're going into a tunnel now. Why are we going into a tunnel? Oh, we've come out now. And everyone's going, this is really embarrassing. We're going, no, it isn't. It's brilliant. Answer the kid, you know. Enjoy his mind. He's alive. And, and we're all getting... We're all being embarrassed by our potential. Yeah. We, we could be so... I mean, that sounds a bit pompous, but I really believe that we, you know, human potential doesn't get fulfilled. We get too, too bogged down into what we think we should or shouldn't be doing, and and that's within each culture. And then the cultures, of course, suspic- are suspicious of each other and everything else. And the only way to blow it apart is really just to be yourself. Yeah. And to have the courage to be yourself. A bloke on the train today, he was sitting there with his dad. Was I saying this earlier about the meal? No. No. I was telling Tallulah. Sorry. And I think they were. Fa- I think they were father and son. Sitting opposite me on the train, and he's and the dad said, um, and, the, and the lads explain. I, th- I guess they're 25 and 45, and the lads say, Yeah, so I make that, like, it's really nice. You know, I'll get that, I'll get like um, mincemeat, and I'll get like baked beans, I put a whole tin of baked beans, and I'll put that in the oven first, and they'll just get it to a certain temperature. And I'll get the cheese, and, I'll, and then I'll get it all nice and bubbly, and I'll let it sit down for a while. I mean, my wife, you know, she cooks, she cooks every night, but she just makes normal meals, you know, and never tastes as good as what I make. And, <laughs> the, and the dad's listening, he's going, yeah, okay, yeah, right, yeah. And, he, and I'm, I'm thinking, this boy is just brilliant, <laughs> no one's paying any attention. <laughs> so when I eventually got off at Embankment, and they're just sitting there going like that, like everybody does. And I, I, I said to him, I said, I said, you've got to come and cook for my wife. I said, you're putting me to shame. He said, what? I said, no, no, that sounded delicious. He went, and he was so happy. <laughs> he laughed, he smiled. He went, and they, I could feel they were looking at me going down the platform going, what happened then? Yeah, the man so, spoke to us. So that's dreaming in public. Yeah. That's being yourself wherever you go, whether you're asleep, whether you're awake. It's, it's having the courage to take that information with you. Kids pick up on it. For sure, and I think really, if we st- if we keep that kid power within us, it- it's there forever. That's that's the real power of humanity. Yeah, <laughs> and this is good. And this is why I thought you'd be great. So because when I when I met you for the DVD commentary, yeah, I was expecting because when I first seen you in stuff, I think I saw you in a woman of substance, and I knew you'd done Tom Brown's School Days, and I'd seen your brother in a film called. Absolution with Richard Burton. You play very buttoned up public school boys, and so I expected you to be quite a sort of stiff and formal chap, and you're the complete opposite. Thank you. <laughs> I think I am, yes. I couldn't be less like that. I think it was really that I, that because of the way I'd spoken in those shows, and it was a, a living, you know, and, and you, I think it was still on the tail end of that 30s and 40s thing where, where English people did tend to speak terribly nicely, terribly properly. And there was almost, it was almost you were trading on the ability to go, can you talk like that? Yes, I can. Right, you get the job. I mean, how stupid is that? So, yeah, I was always... I kind of, yeah... I, I wrote a song called Eloquent Delinquent, <laughs> which I think quite nicely summed me up, that I was always pulling in different directions. I was a different person playing football down at Stamford Common. I was kind of trying to be what Dad wanted me to be, in terms of, you know, he was from a, I suppose what you'd call a, a lower working class background, and therefore he was very concerned about 
doing things not not for appearance but for to, to, to do them well you know it was almost like taking a military uh, idea into an artistic world so but I found it very oppressive it, it was like it was like and I thought well this isn't what art's about and it's really taken me all this time and I'm not kidding you you know, I'm now 59, approaching 60, and I'm just beginning to get a handle on all that information, you know, and all the everything that I've done. And it's taken, really, 10 years of not being in the acting profession at all to sort of let it all settle. And was that was that a, a deliberate decision? Because you and, you and your brother Dominic were both, I mean, mainstays of stuff that I watched growing up I'd see you both together sometimes and, and even in the, the Tempest you're with your Pippa Guard your yeah, cousin yeah, yeah. and, and you, she's your love interest which must she have been a bit indeed. weird yeah well she was very lovely <laughs> I, do, I don't have nothing wrong with that I mean yeah no no she's yeah and we, we actually got a really good review in the New York Times for that a bloke said I've never seen Ferdinand and Miranda played so interestingly because I mean Ferdinand he's just one of those wallies I've played a lot of those wallies. They've got loads of lines and none of them are any good. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And kind of, how to make that interesting. I've got to pile up all these bloody bits of log. Oh, for f***'s sake, cut it. You know, but because he, John Gorry let us do it quite close, there were occasional moments when you're actually looking into her eyes going, I'd like to. And hopefully that came across. Well, and John Gorry is, was one of the first um, victims of this very process that we're undergoing now. Was he? Yeah, and he was great. He, OK. He talked to okay. him for two and a half hours. Yeah, well, he did some fantastic stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was for those, because we sort of didn't flag it up, that was the BBC Shakespeare, The Tempest, with Michael Horden as uh, Prospero, and, mm. of course, being BBC Shakespeare, the entire cast was pretty impressive. It was. Warren Clark, Caliban, yeah. and um, Manuel as... Yeah, Andrew Sachs. As, yeah. as uh, Stefano. Yeah. yeah. Now, so, you know, to be in those, you had to be at the sort of vanguard of the profession, which you definitely did, you, you were. Oh, you ab- absolutely, yes. I mean, and I did kind of expect to get... I mean, I had a decent agent, and I guess I was just still rolling forward. But I was kind of learning on my feet, and I genuinely think I went from being... I could look at that first episode of I, Claudius. I think, actually, I quite, I'm quite good in that. I like what I did, you know, playing that arrogant... And then he's absolutely kind of on his last legs being poisoned by Sean Phillips. I'm looking back at that and thinking, that's good. And then other things I look at that, I think, that's terrible. You know, Wilfred and Eileen, you know, the thing I did with Judy Bowker. I, I was really good in that. And then a year later, my cousin Rachel, I completely blew it. I mean, I just, I think I was trying to be too literal. I was trying to play the bloke like a which he basically is. He's a, he's a, he's a, but that doesn't help your, your profile, you know. Yeah. So I wasn't really taking much notice of me. I was just trying to be what this guy would probably have been like at that time with his lack of intuition into women and everything else, you know. And that's how it came across. And even that, though, I watched some of it a few months ago, having not gone anywhere near it for 15 or 20 years, and I thought... Again, I mean, okay, well, who is this Christopher Garley? It? One minute he's being really cool, and the next minute he's just being completely. <laughs> I don't know. It's just very strange. And then also, it's my own perception of my own work. Indeed. But there must have been, as you say, directors who were looking at it and thinking, okay, this guy can cut it. Let's 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 get him in. I suppose there's also, you know, in those days the director was important and 
you did spend quite a lot of time working with the director. So if it was Herbie Wise or Franco Zeffirelli or someone like that, then yeah, you know, you were more likely to produce a good performance. I think nowadays you're more expected just to come with your performance and give it, which is fine. But I'd go in like an open book. Yeah. So you would tend to be the result of your director's choices. So if you were crap, it was his fault. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But as we've been speaking today, as you said, you alluded to before, you've sort of been full-time in the business. So was that a conscious decision to move away from that and do what I know you have been doing, which is your music? Or was it less deliberate than that? I think the main, the main um, strategic reason, other than not being able to play 30 anymore, was the fact that I, you know, I hitched up with Kath. I met Kath on Casualty. She had, a, you know, our daughter Tallulah. She was still in the show for the first three years of Tallulah's life, and that was based in Bristol, so I'm hammering up and down the M4, thinking, can I catch Tallulah's bath time? Yes, probably. But what's the point if I'm dead when I get there? But nevertheless, you know, up the fast lane and there, and and I... I did turn down a couple of jobs at that time, which were not massive, but they were at a time, I think, when agents were looking more at the accounts than perhaps I'd been used to. And um, I should never have left Pippa Markham. (laughs) It's the best in the business. And, you know, but we we went through some problems. And anyway, so I think it was mainly... um, I don't know. I don't know. It was a combination of factors. But I certainly decided to spend more, not like a house husband, but I didn't particularly want to travel a lot around Lou. And the trouble is, you know, being successful or unsuccessful, it could be like, oh, you know, you're a third spear carrier, but you've got to travel to China to play it. Or you've, you've got the lead role in X, Y, or Z, but you've got, yeah, yeah, I've got the job, it's in Jamaica, it's for you know, six months or whatever, but then you suddenly think, how do I cope with the, with the domestic side of that? Because you, what's the point in having kids if you're not around to be with them? So several times I took my kids with me, put unbearable strain on things sometimes because, you know, you're not expected to be looking after kids, you're supposed to be looking after yourself because it's ult- ultimately a centrifugal, self-serving industry. You are the product. We are glorious, sophisticated whores. That's what we do. And it's a hard one to, to call. Yeah. And I think I learned on my feet. And I, I, can, I can speak empirically now about the whole process, uh, but I haven't got any answers. I just think that when we got to that stage, 2002, 2003, um, in order that I could be spend more time in Bristol with Kath and with Lou, I said no to some jobs. And at the end of that year, my agent said, look, hang on, we're looking at you, you're not working, what, what do you want? And I said, well, I'd... I said, well, I want a good job. Well, there's nothing coming up, you know. And you've also got that problem of when you've been used to being relatively high up the pile. It's not because you feel vainglorious about it. It's, it's more to do with the, your boredom threshold. It's really tough to go, you know, kind of, you know, doffing your cap to, to, to people who don't have as much experience as you do. And there's always a danger that you're going to get irritable and... I don't mean like an irritable old man. I just mean you just run out of patience with the whole, mm-hmm. whole process. I understand that. So then, so therefore, when you go into, you know, as I had done, I started working voluntarily in Toulouse School, in the primary school. It's a brilliant multicultural primary 
just up the road from where we live, I can walk there. And I just got more and more involved with the place. Started doing literacy stuff, teaching kids how to have fun with words, how to enjoy language, you know, and using all my sort of acting skills, but in a totally different kind of way. And then I added art to that, you know, because I paint and draw a bit. Someone said, oh, you've got to put a, make a website. So I made a website for myself and somebody saw it and they said, oh, will you just, what, will you be artist in residence at the school? So I'm going, what, you mean with a beret? And, you know, <laughs> and I go, I can't do that. And they said, well, yeah, yeah, well, that's what we want you to do. And, OK, I suppose I have to confess that, I'm, you know, some of the work I've done is, is, is good. And, but, I'm, but it's mainly about it's inspiring the kids because I'm not taught, I'm self-taught. So I say to them, I don't know what, I don't know what the f- I'm doing, <laughs> and neither do you. So let's not know what the f- we're doing together. Yeah. Well, look, we're nearly at the end of our designated half yeah. an hour because you've got pressing engagements. And I love the fact that we've talked more in general about attitudes and feelings than about specific credits because that makes this a very different one. But is there a, are, are there any jobs that you look back on and think you either cracked that or that were the best best time that you had working? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, yeah, that Doctor Who was was great in terms of the people I worked with. David Copperfield was great in terms... I thought I was really good in that. I think as an actor, I probably peaked when I was 12. <laughs> but, no, the last stage job I did, which was when I played a kind of groovy, youngish Sherlock Holmes at the Watermill Theatre Newbury, and got some really good reviews. Um, by kind of just going my own way with it, and it was a huge part to learn, as you can imagine very physical, quite electric and not we didn't do it at all like your fuddy-duddy sort of... And I, I look, look back on that with a, with a lot of um, I think I was good, you know and then, then I stopped <laughs> that was the last theatre job I did but yeah, I, think, I think it's about trying to find a way of bringing all your various abilities together and just make them count some of them perhaps you have to leave behind and some of them you have to prioritise I don't know, it's probably like what you were saying about being just being yourself. It's just, yeah, it's, yeah it's just, And then, of course, we go, but who am I? There's <laughs> all that. <laughs> but yeah, what else? Yeah, The Tempest I was proud of. Um, I think, oh, I had a brilliant time doing Little Night Music. I mean, a deeply flawed film, but working with Stephen Sondheim on that was fantastic. You know, recording the original soundtrack, I was allowed to sing my own song. They deliberately took it down from soprano to tenor. Well, from tenor to baritone, I should say, so that I could sing it. And sometimes saying to me, he was lying on his back, drinking his customary whiskey and smoking his cigarette in the control room, and he said, you've got Diana Rigg, you've got Hermione Gingold, Liz Taylor, Len Carew, Larry Gittard, all Leslie Andown, all round the mics in the booths. We're all trying to sing Weekend of the Country. And Stephen said, OK, can I just say one thing? There's only one person in there who's got, who's got any sense of rhythm. And that's Christopher. And I'm going like, yes! <laughs> Result. Because they're all trying to sing sing over the, the, the beat, you know. That's that old opera, problem with opera singers when they try to sing, you know, rhythm and blues. They kind of, they spill over the edges. You've got to find another way of approaching it. So that was a pretty cool moment. And music's very important, isn't it? Because that's what you're doing a lot of now. Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, I, 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 it's not something I've kind of willed on myself. It's in the blood. My uncle Barry's a, you know, respect, respected music producer. Um, my daughter Tallulah's definitely got it in her. My Daisy, Daisy, my daughter sings. She's got a wonderful voice. You know, kind of just stone type bluesy voice. And um, 
it's definitely in the blood. Again, it's something which I think it may. I don't know. Well, watch watch this space because I'm I'm really you know not relaunching myself, but I've decided to re sing a lot of the songs that I sort of farmed out to other people myself. We're re-recording them, and it's, it's sounding interesting. And I, I think there is perhaps a you know, more more of a an opportunity for for people when they're older, like I am, to to still with energy um, go out there and I don't know, just just say something. You know? I, I mean, as we said just before we started, uh, as a certain Mr. Capaldi might prove. Yes, uh, exactly, exactly. Yes. Well, it was. Uh, you mentioned at the very beginning of this that it was. Uh, uh, you watched the first episode, which was 50 years ago this year, because mm. it was the day after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So my final two questions. Was it the day? It after? was the day after. I didn't realise that. Yeah. So much happened in that that time. It was a great time to be a kid. Yeah. So much was going on. Yeah. You know. Well, what an extraordinary weekend. <laughs> Yeah, really. Kennedy shot, and then the next I day... I didn't realise they were one after another. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. So that's why I guess everyone was glued to their telly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, question. So, the well, the first question, I guess, is, um, is oh, as always, what's the charity that uh, is going to benefit from this chat that you've kind of given your time for for nothing? OK, I think I'll have to go for the World Wildlife Fund. Lovely. Because they're really well-centred, not just around pandas and cosy animals anymore. They're reaching out right into all the political areas and they're covering everything, I think. So I think the future is... is well, I think the future is about the planet, for sure. That's what we have to do. I think it says in the Bible we were given dominion over the other creatures. That doesn't mean kick the shit out of them. <laughs> it means look after them. You know. And so the final question, we've sort of done a bit of it, is um, Doctor Who's 50 this year. This podcast is being done because Doctor Who's 50 this year. What's your message to the listening Doctor Who fans out there? Oh, crikey. Well, I'm, I'm amazed that, that we're all still here, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Um, it, it just didn't feel like it was going to last this long, but I think the seeds were sown that very first day in that mystery, that sense of creeping otherness that none of us could quite put our fingers on. That explains it. Brilliant. Chris Gard, great chat. Thank you very much. OK. Brilliant. Is that all right for you? Yeah, yeah. That was great. Yeah. That was great. That was really good. Uh, thanks to Chris and to Erica Edgerton for hooking us up. Erica runs a convention called Who at the Hillborough in the Wirral uh, and has already booked Brian Croucher, Marcus Gilbert and Andrew Smith for next year and there are more people to come. It's a good one. Check it out. Chris's charity is the World Wildlife Fund, www.wwf.org.uk. Now, as we approach 100, the next podcast is number 90, uh, I'm going to break with the norm and not do the normal running order. And because the only feedback I ever get is, hey, when's next Russell T Davis one? It seems to me that despite the fact that I track down people who've never been interviewed before, you do like to hear from people who've had um, a slightly larger involvement with the show. So as we count down to number 100, which is a very special release, uh, I will be interviewing perhaps some more usual suspects, but hopefully are getting them to talk about some things that they don't normally talk about at conventions and things. So here's a quick snapshot of my next guest. Can you guess who it is? Affirmative. Until next time, and remember, we're counting down to 100. 
Yes, I've just retired from being a magistrate by reason of age. I am still a magistrate till the day I die, the justice of the peace, but I'm not an active magistrate, so I can do all. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, Mistfall. Doctor, what is this? I think I know, but it can't be. We're on your home planet? No, we're not on Gallifrey. Then where are we? We're on Alzarius. Adric often talked about how the ecology of Alzarius changed every 50 years or so. Mistfall? He told you about that? Enough that I think we need to be sure it isn't going to happen any time soon. We mean you no harm, but you need to get your people out of the water. It's dangerous! Huh? Really? There are creatures in that marsh dormant, but if you disturb the Creatures? You mean the marshmen? Our instruments are picking up low-level seismic activity in pockets all across the planet. Seismic activity? Like an earthquake? It's not an earthquake, is it? The sun? Mistfall is coming. Someone, please! Get me out of here! <laughs> Magnificent! Look at them! Oh. Oh. Spider! Drop it! Oh, drop it! Oh. If they wake up, are you sure this glass is strong enough to contain them? Because you had better be very sure. Oh. 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 He's attacking the instruments! We have to go! Come on! Everyone! Run! Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.